and welcome to Socialist Think Tank. I'm Laura Daly and this is The Social Ties. Hello and welcome back to The Social Ties. It's been a long time. I'm thrilled to be back with a very familiar face. You know her, she's been on the show a few times, the amazing Chantal Lunt. Hi Chantal, how are you? Good, I'm good. As good as you can be the day after the police ran sentencing and court school's gone through, but I'm okay. We'll get through it. Yeah, absolutely. And that feeds us right into exactly what we're going to be talking about today, Chantelle. Um, so today we're going to be talking about Operation Withdraw Consent. Um, for anybody who doesn't know what that is and why it's so important, Chantelle's going to talk us through it. So Chantelle, can you give us a little bit of background? What What is this? What is Operation Withdraw Consent? So basically, Operation Withdraw Consent is something that's come from conversations that I've been having for a while. Um, I was obviously a former police officer. And in the UK, there's this um, something that the police and the government tell us is that we are police by consent, which basically means that the majority of the public consent to the current model of policing and we consent to the way that we are policed. And, you know, with everything that's happened with Sarah Everard, with Child Q, with BLM and with the, you know, the policing of protests, which we can see is quite disproportionate, quite violent. And we can see visibly the oppression of working class people, whilst at the same time, Things like corruption in Parliament, you know, drug taking in Parliament, parties during COVID are largely overlooked by the police. There's been a big question that's constantly asked of me and something that I um, discuss quite often, which is, can we withdraw consent? And it went from a statement of we need to withdraw consent to someone asking me on a Twitter spaces, can it be done? And I like, hi, I have like researched this quite a lot and, you know, really did have a few ideas about this. And the person who asked me when I said, well, I think it can, you know, if we collectively withdraw consent um, and if we use some of the structures that have been created for us to have a voice within police, then I think we can withdraw consent. And um, the person who asked me was actually quite taken aback. They were like, oh, I didn't think you could. I didn't think it was real and I was like well it's not really real but if you know if it's not real then we can also contest it like at an ideological level and we can contest it as an idea if consent is just an idea then we can challenge that idea with other ideas and also a bit of a structure too so from that conversation and um, interestingly the person who brought me on it was like a twitter spaces ended up getting involved um, with setting up withdrawal consent and was like yeah you know what I mean everyone I've gone to with the structures like yeah that looks like something that we can really get up and running um but it is basically just questioning the premise of the police questioning the model of policing and even policing as a concept and um, when we say policing it doesn't mean the police like policing as a concept doesn't actually mean the police it's just how you respond to you know challenges and conflict within communities there's communities indigenous communities communities all over the world who don't have the police but they do have models of policing where it's very much community owned people will go to councils and there'll be you know community um retributions and things like that that don't involve locking people up and don't involve um having officers with batons coming in and, and causing a lot of harm so it is really questioning what we know about policing it's making people aware that policing as a model is less than 200 years old it's a relatively new social experiment and even by the police's own standards it's one that's going very very badly um so yeah it was it was looking to challenge 
policing as a concept, looking to create new models of policing within our communities that actually do benefit our communities and, and do see crime reduced, but like it's also about the quality of life increasing. So yeah, we want crime to go down, but we also want people to be happier and achieving positive outcomes. So it's looking at policing from a different angle and also looking at social harm and the things that aren't policed from a different angle. So for me, it's just as important to be policing um, corporations, like those responsible for Cladden for Grenfell, policing organisations like the police, when we consider, you know, Hillsborough and how new one's really been brought to justice like that. And also, if we look at the environment, the quality of air currently in this country is so bad that some people are being told to stay in because they might be harmed by breathing it in. And I feel like environmental offenders should be policed the way that working class people are policed because policing is not just about crime, it's about social harm. And these organisations and these corporations and these very rich um, kinds of modelless people are arguably criminals too, yet the law is written to benefit the ruling class and to kind of restrict the activities of the working class. Wow, that is so interesting. And, and I wasn't aware that it was something that was even a possibility. And like you say, it might not be written down in paper, but certainly a, a community action could lead to it. And I wasn't aware that policing was only around for 200 years as well. You're right, it is quite a fairly new concept. Um, you come from a policing background. You used to be a police officer. How was how that experience feeding into this particular um, campaign for you? I think it's it's very much the driving force behind the experience and it's something like yesterday we put a little in um, a few memes oh well not memes they were counter campaigns to the police's I keep on getting targeted with join the police help us change the world campaigns with lovely you know black and diverse faces on it and so we created an opposite one with a picture of me in my uniform saying do, do the right thing for your community don't join the police because it you know there's a lot of very well intentioned people who will join the police thinking that they're going to help the communities and you know do really good work and, and I can't really criticize those people I was one of those people I thought that the police was a really good vehicle for me to help my community and I joined the police from you know I worked in a social care background for 12 years so I joined from working in my community and thinking that this would be a similar setup and you know how wrong I was there's very few officers who are in the job to help their communities or to help vulnerable people or to even help victims the majority of officers are in the job to do all the batting the type kicking down doors and going in really hard they've all got like you know kinds of superiority complexes and a bully locker room mentality and when you've got people like that responding to the needs of really vulnerable communities it's worrying and so I went in with my like you know my social care head on and something that was often used as a derogatory term towards me was oh you you're like a mini social worker stop trying to help them just lock them up and I was like, well, when did, when, when did we stop trying to help people? I didn't realise that's what I signed up for when I became a police officer. So aside from obviously the racism and misogyny that I experienced, like I, as someone who just wasn't comfortable with being that way and was always challenge any racism or misogyny that I saw and challenge any, you know, corruption or any suggestions of being corrupt and was just like, no, I'm not going to do that. Even if we go the long way around, let's do this right that's not a popular perspective within the police force. There's a culture within the police force which is quite toxic. Um, 
And from my, in my opinion, I've seen the policies, I've seen what the College of Policing rights the policing should be. I know about say, Robert Peel's principles. So when we talk about the police being a relatively new social experiment, this is the police in England. The police were used like in the colonies um, as a way of managing um, colonialism and in Northern Ireland before it was brought to England in 1829, based largely on colonial models of keeping the working class and keeping kind of dissenting voices in check. And so like even by, even by their principles, which is kind of known as orthodox policing history, which is what they tell us the police were brought in to do, being a rep representative of the community, kind of being rooted in integrity, free from corruption, and really being a servant to the public and listening to the public, and it very much being something that the public consent to. And all these, if you read about policing, you'd actually be like, oh yeah, this is a lovely model. This looks like it could be really good. So what I realized was what's written down in paper at like a policy level and a strategy level is not reflected in what happens at a practical level on the streets and there's a culture within policing which absolutely overrides any policy that they can write and it's just so toxic like the, the bad apples as everyone likes to call them these officers who are you know people who should be nowhere near the uniform or any form of power they very much kind of run the roost in policing they the ones who coordinate how officers act. People look up to how they act and there's this culture that will kind of champion the police officer who pulls over a pregnant mother on her way to give birth because she was speeding and gives her a ticket rather than the officer who talks someone down from a bridge who was about to kill themselves. Like I've seen officers, an officer who um, stops someone from causing harm to themselves with a razor blade. A lovely officer came into the force, as many do, bright eyes and bushy tails, wanted to make a difference. People then put razor blades in that officer's locker to mock them for like for softness. And it's just like, and so when you've had that insider perspective, you realize that it's not an organization that wants to change. And when they come out and say, you know, after Sarah Everard, after BLM, after all of those things that have highlighted racism and misogyny, oh, we're going to bring out a new policy, we're going to train officers. I just laugh because I'm like, all of the training in the world is not going to fix that culture. You have to address it at a cultural level and it's not being addressed at a cultural level. That culture, we know, just last week there was news of another WhatsApp group of racist and misogynistic messages. There's, the culture is completely toxic and it's unfixable. So. For me, any tweaking and tinkering with the system, with this aim of serving and supporting communities is absolutely problematic. And it's like, and so I'm just like, that's not going to work. And what, at the same time, I think obviously the social care perspective has really helped because like I worked in Anfield for about six years, I worked in Toxic for about four years. I've worked in really kind of marginalized areas. And I literally, I think about four years into my career, the Tories got in and I watched, like I worked in children's centres and I watched the funding in marginalised areas just go down, 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 down. The, you know, youth funding, social services funding, education funding, mental health funds, and all of those structures that hold communities together and stop people from falling off a cliff, that safety net, that social safety net, the Tories just put massive holes in it through denying those services funding. But at the same time, then these symptoms were coming up of increased criminality, you know, young people not really knowing what to do with themselves, antisocial behaviour. And rather than going and addressing the root of the problem, which was denying areas, socio-economic kinds of 
stability in those services that they need. He just gave more funds into the police to fix the problem and then started sending more officers into those areas, like a stick and plaster officers who do not care and are badly trained and don't want to help communities. So they send officers in to deal with mental health. He sends officers in to deal with things that should be dealt with at a social services level, youth services, and they deal with it badly. And these, like 80%, like HMRC's own data will tell you that 80% of the incidents police respond to are not crimes. They don't even come in as crimes. Yet what officers will often do, because they don't, they want to respond to crime and they will make things a crime just to keep themselves entertained, is they will escalate and they'll push the people they're dealing with until they can get like an assault or an obstruction charge. And then they'll arrest those people and bring them in. And they'll often make the situation worse. Whereas we need care and community members go and respond to the needs of the community. Because all of this funding and all of these resources that were over here at a social care level have been thrown into the police, they were just acting as a stick and plaster. We were in this situation, there's no win situation. Yes, crime will go up, but crime is not going up because we need more police officers. Crime is going up because you've under-resourced communities and then you're sending the police in as a response when you need to be kind of looking at reduction kinds of actions that are going to prevent crime from happening in the first place. You know, we can't always be responding to things, we need to be preventing things. So what Operation Withdrawal Consent is basically doing is like it's highlighting what the police are saying about themselves and the fact that you know the police only solve 7.8 percent of crimes like so only 7.8 even by what they say like only 7.8 percent of crimes result in like a conviction a charge or a summons you know what i mean that's not even like getting to the end point and we look at like things like the Peelian principles. So I won't tell you all the Peelian principles, but these are basically Sir Robert Peel, who found that the police, what he said is that the police is rooted in. And that, and two, like really stick out for me. So principle number two basically says, officers faithfully discharge the duties of officer constable with fairness, integrity, diligence, and impartiality, and will uphold fundamental human rights and accord equal respect to all people. I mean, I actually thought some of this was was comedy when I was reading these peeling principles. I was like, really? There's not an impartial about the way our communities police. We only need to look at Parliament to see that working class, there's no impartiality between the ruling class and the working class. Boris got a fine for £50. Some nurses who put on protests against the fact that they were working in horrendous conditions and not getting a pay rise were fined £10,000 for putting those protests on. Students were fined £10,000. Yeah, the Prime Minister was fined £50. And then obviously upholding human rights and this concept of integrity and being impartial and treating people the same. You know, any black person, child Q, all of these incidents, Dalian Atkinson, Eva Henry and Nicole Smallman, all incidents of the police degrading black bodies and dehumanising people, you know, in some instances leading to the death of people or not investigating the death of Eva Henry and Nicole Smallman and taking selfies. We know that people are not all... Um, afforded dignity and respect for the human rights. And then we've got principle um, nine, to recognise that the power of the police to fulfil their function and duties is dependent on public approval of their existence, actions and behaviour, and on the ability to secure and maintain public respect. Um, 
And, and this is where the did do some dig, and this is where the, the concept of policing by consent is rooted. And, you know, these principles are nearly 200 years old, but these principles are still what is on the College of Policing's website of what the police is rooted in. These principles are still on gov.uk's website. You can find them there. And below that, it says that we are policed by consent. And, and the government did kind of drill down because I think they did see people like me come and thinking, um, oh, hang on, what, what, what are they going to kind of, what are they going to come and say? And they said no individual can withdraw consent. It's something that's collectively given by the public. So I'm, I, I kind of, I'm thinking, when was the last time the public were asked if we consent to this policing? Do you know what I mean? When was the last consultation? When were we last given an option to withdraw consent? Because consent can't just be assumed. Do you know what I mean? We know, like you can't, you can't just assume that we consent to this. You have to ask us. And when was the last time? Have you ever checked in with the public and said? do you consent to the level of policing that we've got? You know, we're at a point today because of the police crime sentencing and courts bill where someone standing on the street with a megaphone can go to prison for 10 years just for being too noisy. They're trying to have their voice heard. Do the public consent to where we're at? Do you know what I mean? Do we consent to what we saw at the Sarah and Everard vigil? Do we consent to what we know is a force that harbors pedophiles, rapists, murderers at one end of the spectrum? and then completely kind of morally redundant and corrupt officers at the other end of the spectrum. And there's very few within that force. There are a few, do you know what I mean? But there's very few within that force who actually really want to help their communities. And do we consent to funding constantly by being diverted to the police at the expense of communities? And so, you know, when I spoke of the principles, I think I told you the vision of the police and then principle two. Principle nine is in to recognise always. Oh, I like principle nine. It's my favourite. To recognise always that the test of police efficiency is the absence of crime and disorder and not the visible evidence of police action in dealing with them. So even by their own principle nine, the failing, the failing on every level. I mean, please do read all nine principles because every single one of them, the failing for if the test of police efficiency is the absence of crime and disorder, they are failing and not the visible evidence of police in action, they are failing because all I see everywhere is police in action and a more militarised police force, you know, increasingly officers are being given tasers, increasingly officers are being given weapons, now more and more officers are being trained in really militarised task force, so even at a policing level, they're being moved away from that local policing structure and moved into kind of essentially being a standing army and they're being you know they're quite centralized as well so and I'm not saying that this was everything but even when the police were originally you know fought up they were very much rooted and based within communities and they knew the community and they had that kind of local knowledge now the police are centralized and they just fly in and fly out they've got no local knowledge they don't care about communities they don't know what the local landscape is they don't know what's going on at a community level and the basically these uncaring bodies who just come in to do a job they haven't got time to listen to what's happening and then they fly out um, and then there's just there's so much profile and there's so much stereotyping going on with police and like last week the IOPCC report came out which just absolutely condemned the police for the disproportionately racist stop and searches that they do but something that always sticks in my mind is you know the police are always told to to go in with the lowest level of force like use a low amount of force you know get people to understand what they're trying to do and really get people on side if especially if they're doing something like a stop and search which isn't an arrest you're just detaining someone and most of the time people haven't done anything wrong 77 percent of 
stop and searches the people being stopped and searched have got nothing on them so most people being stopped and searched have done nothing wrong and there was some there's an instance of a boy a young person who aged between 14 and 16 was stopped and searched 60 times by the police young black lads every time he'd done nothing wrong there's incidents where the police within 12 seconds of detaining someone like within 12 seconds of grabbing them and saying i would like to stop and search you had already sprayed them with parva which is basically pepper spray and handcuff people and it's like and these are black people and so you've got a question where is the kinds of rationalization where is the trying to de-escalate situations and where is your thought process that within 12 seconds of seeing someone you have pepper sprayed them in the face just because you wanted to stop search them and they've got like the highest levels of compliance handcuffing which like I don't think should be a thing handcuffing is only meant to happen if someone's meant to pose a danger to you themselves or others compliance handcuffing is when someone's like just happy you know the compliance the so why are you handcuffing them it's because of something in the officer's head where they think that this person might be a threat and black people are disproportionately compliantly handcuffed and um, I know those two sprinters are in the news at the moment two black sprinters from TV and GB who were handcuffed during a a car a vehicle stop when they had the baby in the car and dragged out the car and they've done nothing wrong so we've got a question the tactics that the police keep on using within our communities because they are completely disproportionate and the, the they're often rooted in this concept of perceiving certain communities as inherently criminal and these stereotypes that have just persisted over the years of the black communities being criminal and even the iopc said that yeah, they absolutely said that these officers are using a disproportionate amount of force on black people. They even said when, and they're perceiving black people as a threat, regardless of what black people are doing. So they're putting black people in handcuffs and spraying them, regardless of what a person is doing. And how can you make a decision-making process in 12 seconds? And they said when these officers are being asked, why are you doing this? Like, why do you keep on using this level of force against black people? They can't come up with a satisfactory answer. They can't explain it. And to me, that just points to one thing. This is racist policing. But this operation with draw consent, as a black person, obviously, I'll naturally gravitate towards this racing policing, racist policing. It's not just about racist policing. It's about sexist policing. Policing. It's about how communities with disabilities are policed. Like we spoke to a dad whose son's got autism, who within interactions with the police, the police have been horrendous with this young man because he can't verbally express himself and they see that as some sort of the young man being rude and then we'll start to get handcuffs on him because he can't tell them what is happening um, and so there's there's no level of care and basically what we're asking for is that this 80 percent of of incidents that the police respond to that are non-criminal they shouldn't be responding to those incidents anymore we know that they haven't got the skills, the strategy, the temperaments, they haven't got any of those things needed. And we know that no training policy is gonna change that. We've been trying to tinker with the system forever, for too long. And I'm sick of people saying, oh, we just need to recruit more diverse officers. Oh, we just need to give them a new training package. Oh, they don't know what's happening. We've had the Scarman report, the McPherson report, the Lamy report, the IOPC of reporters, we've had personal stories, we've had Child Q, we've had Sarah Everard, we've had, we've had, we've had. The police know what the issue is, but they know that they don't want to change it. And while we have a government that are just giving them more power and excusing everything that they do, why on earth would they want to change that? So we want 80% of police resources to be put back into the community 
but we also want communities to be given the power to respond to those incidents that are going to the police that do not require a policing response. And we also, like the IOPC are amazing, but the, they're an advisory panel and there's, you know, there's a few former officers in there. They do do good work, but there's still that kind of link with the police that's there and there's still this kind of, they basically just advise, they can't really force, no one can really currently force the police to do anything. And we think that that's wrong. We want panels that are completely independent of the police who can scrutinize the police, like community panels, not related to police officers in any way, but strongly linked to communities who can scrutinize what the police are doing and challenge them. But the person who needs to be holding the police to account are police crime commissioners. Like we've got these, police crime commissioners who are political. So when we talk about political impartiality, the people who hold the funding for the police are police crime commissioners who are, you know, associated with Labour or Tories or whoever it is in your area. I know our crime commissioner is Labour. But the, these individuals, very well-paid individuals, I think they're on about 80 grand last time I checked. So they're really up there. Their job is to hold the police to account and to be the voice of the public and to impose the will of the public on policing. So this idea of policing by consent, they're supposed to be the vehicle through which we consent and through which we have a say around policing. But in most areas, the police crime commissioners and the chief constables are like that. And they're indistinguishable from each other. And the police chief constable very much dictates to the crime commissioner. So how are the community supposed to trust and believe in these crime commissioners when they very much have the ear of the chief constable and will listen to the will of the chief constable who will tell them how it is. And we really want those police crime commissioners to be listening to the communities. Um, and we kind of did want to have some sort of vote on do we consent to policing. It's so funny though, because we put a um, petition in to parliament to outline what we would like and what we would like parliament to do, basically take this funding away from the police and give power to communities to hold police to account. And um, Parliament declined our petition. And I was like, how democratic? It didn't even get out there, they declined it. And I was like, we're gonna put it in again. But this notion of democracy is, it is problematic because, and this notion that we do, we are able to consent. We really do need to be challenging that. And we really do kind of need to be asking, okay, how do we consent? Because it seems that at every opportunity when we do say, okay, we would like to withdraw consent, the government and the police are putting the hands over their ears and going, we can't hear you. And if it isn't policing by consent, they need to take it off the website and they need to take it off the government website and they need to be really transparent about that. So for me, like when I was in police academy, something that I was really bothered by was we had cohorts of American officers coming to our training camps and looking around and they would go, policing in England is different because the public want this and it's a bit like you know it's a bit like hitting a black person over the head with the bat and being like but you consented to this it's like it's gaslighting on like you know on a state level it's state gaslighting and I think don't tell us we want this when you never asked us that's not what consent is so if it is policing by consent allow us to consent or withdraw consent that should be an option that's what democracy is all about so we need a vehicle to withdraw consent and so we are asking people to kind of the biggest vehicle at our disposal i mean we know that um elon Musk just bought twitter so <laughs> freedom of speech is a bit questionable at the moment but one of the biggest vehicles at our disposal particularly given that the mainstream media 
I just love them the other way on so many instances. Like they barely reported the, the police crime sentencing and court bill went through yesterday. That was like, you know, Putin took seven years to get this kind of legislation through in Russia. And Priti Patel has now taken just over a year and she's got it through. Like that should be front page news. I was speaking to an, um, a German reporter when I was in London on, on Tuesday. And she said, I can't believe that, like, the whole country has not stopped. Like, if this kind of legislation was going in through Russia, she was like, it's fascist legislation. I mean, in Germany, she was like, we would we would absolutely, the whole country would come to a standstill. We would not allow it. And she was like, why, why are British people just not bothered? And I was like, the media are not, you know, the media just aren't telling people. And it's really hard to get that message out there. But... We do. We need to use social media and we need to utilize kind of, especially the withdrawal consent hashtag to tell our stories and to talk about why we are withdrawing consent. Like, <laughs> we've had some really interesting stories and in at the moment from people, we've had stories of people being strip searched by officers, people, you know, sending in videos of stopping searches. Again, you know, we've had every end of the spectrum though, like people who, we've had a social worker who we're going to put the story out soon, but who, challenged an officer who was absolutely using disproportionate force against this young lad who'd stolen from a shop and I think he'd stolen food and she was he was off duty with his friends and they were just like had him in like a headlock and being really really forceful and she was saying like officers I'm a social worker like please you know this young man like he looks like he's hungry he's stealing food I will pay for the food please get off him they were really rude they started calling her a do-gooder saying oh it's another one of these do-gooders and she was really, really upset by, A, the way they handled it, the force that was used, and the fact that the young man, she said he also had a disability, like an, um, a, and he was neurodiverse, and she said you could see that he couldn't communicate as well, and she said they weren't taking any of that into account, and she was kind of just asking them really politely, please get off him, please understand that he's got additional needs, and he needs, he's like, this clearly is like a social care incident. And they were rude and dismissive of it. And this woman, you know, she's got a PhD, so she she did take it through the complaints procedure, but within internally within the police force. And obviously, she's got she's a doctor, so she's she has like a nice letterhead of paper. But the the force just sent her. This is me. Sad police force a letter back saying that they supported the officers. And yes, it can be distressing, but the officers knew what they were doing, and and they don't they don't know what they're doing. All they know is that the and even this, this is what she said even the store owner came out and said we don't want to prosecute we don't want to do anything and so what they did was they put an assault charge through while the guy was like trying to stop them attacking him they said that he assaulted one of the officers so they charged him because they couldn't get an, a charge and a complaint from the shop and because and this is the thing you know this discretion that officers have it's always used to the detriment of vulnerable individuals but they charged the young man with assault because they couldn't get a um a theft charge from the shop and um, oh, that is un unreal and yet somehow completely believable given yeah. like it's just one thing after another at the minute there's just so much to unpick there it's just I mean I guess one theme that I've, I've I've picked out from what you've been saying is that that there seems to be a power structure here mm. um and you know police and it lends itself to people who are looking for power um, rather than looking to help other people. Um, and obviously you've said there about how we need to sort of 
tackle corporations and, and police them better um, and in parliament they're getting away with whatever they want and it is all of these structures that are, are, are seen as being powerful and actually these are the structures that are there to represent the people or to help the people or to serve the people and there's no connect there between those two ideologies it is very much we've got power and everyone else is just left to sort of deal with it um, I really like the idea of of giving power back to communities. What would that look like? Um, you know, should this be successful and we are able to somehow withdraw our consent for those 80%, what would it look like in communities? What's the hope um, for, for going forward? So I, I hate pyramids because obviously capitalism and all that is like a pyramid. <laughs> but like, I know when I worked in social care, a lot of things are pyramids and kind of, you have different levels of calls. So when I was in the police, things would come in as a, a priority and things would come in as an emergency. And so, and this, and I think it is really, you know, it's a blessing that I have at the social care perspective because when I was doing the job, I was a bit like, not much of this is crime. Do you know what I mean? A lot of this could be done by people I work with and, and done a lot better. So I think it, A, you know, is getting those, we need to get, youth centres back into the community there are people who will do the work and and I found it really patronising like we have a lot of officers we've got you know we're in relatively new movements and our social media is relatively new and all these police officers and child police officer accounts have followed us and one of them was like oh you know I like the idea of this but why don't you just do it voluntary everything you're saying can be done at a community level and I was like so you keep that 80% of funding to do to it badly but we are expected to do it for free in a really exploitative system where we just do it out of the goodness of our hearts. This is a service that our community needs and services need to be effectively funded. And it's not fair to ask community members to do things at a voluntary level. And so much of you know, our welfare services and so much of the services that our communities need are basically, they're basically held together at the moment by goodwill. And goodwill will only get you so far. Like I volunteer a lot, but again, there's only so much you can volunteer to do and for something to be really strategic and to have the resources it needs like even at a at a physical level or at an equipment level it needs to be well funded so that's completely patronizing and why should an organization that has absolutely destroyed communities and demonstrated that it's incapable of doing the job keep that funding that has been taken from communities and diverted so there are instances where that community you know funding has been diverted back into the community off the back of blm like texas austin texas diverted 20 million back into the public health base and that's what we're kind of calling for we're not calling for new well some new structures would be amazing but Structures already exist within communities, they just don't have the money. So, you know, women's refuges need massive funding. Children's centres, I cannot stress this enough. When we worked in, when I worked in children's centres, we lost 80% of our funding and the impact that that has at a community level, we just couldn't get out. Do you know what I mean? We, we barely kept the lights on. So we were centralised, we couldn't get to the places we needed to get to and we couldn't facilitate the community getting to us and we were just on a shoestring budget. Children's centres need the funding back and they, these are organisations that you're not going to see the benefit of what they're doing in a year. It's going to be 10 years down the line when these children are growing up and they've got options and their only options are not now, you know, join a criminal gang or be stopped and searched by the police as you scramble into to get an existence together where there's really lack of opportunities. Children's centres need that funding back. Youth centres need that funding back. Health centres need that funding back and they need to be available at a community level. 
massively, massively, massively mental health, mental health first aid teams at a community level, homeless refuges and support for people facing homelessness at a community level. So it's getting these services that we've got really sparsely dotted around our community at a centralised level in every area. Like imagine every area has those services and a hub where you could access those services. But also imagine we had a system where places like, you know, if we look at Child's Q School, if we had a structure in place where we've got these, you know, priority and emergencies up there that go to the police, let's call them like level one and two. So this is something where someone's life's in danger, there's a definite crime identified or it's an emergency. By all means, phone the police, that's got to go to the police. But if there's no life in danger, it's not an emergency, and we don't actually think there's a crime happening, it's just an issue of someone, like, for instance, I used to get called to instance where homeless people were just maybe sitting in a car park all day, or they were, you know, people were bothered by them, but they weren't actually doing anything, and I'd go, people are some officers be going on the vagrancy act and, and moving them on or arresting them for public order and i'm like what the hell imagine it was the community going out and finding out what they needed and getting some housing forms done or find you know starting to actually make a difference because what difference does an arrest me and equally you know child q school imagine that teacher has a little pyramid in the corner going is this an emergency is it causing anyone harm or can I call community services or parents who will come and have a conversation with this child? Because at the end of the day, it's a child. And if you suspect that the child's drug dealing, which she wasn't, then a community level response is needed because that's exploitation. And then if you suspect the child is drug taken, again, which she wasn't, then a community intervention is needed because we don't want to be criminalising people for substance misuse. We actually want to be helping them. But imagine we had this model where like anything that was level three, four, five and below, we weren't calling the police, we were actually calling identified services who were able to respond. And then they could, if it was going above the level that they were able to respond to, like I did this all the time as a family, Lincoln family support worker, we were one below social workers. So as social services were being cut like that, a lot of our remits increased, but we would, you'd sometimes go out to something and you'd be like, this is a social service, you know, this needs a social services intervention. You go back and you phone a social worker and say, this has gone above the level that I'm able to respond to. Can you go out to this? Equally, the social services would go out to stuff and they'd go, this does not need a social worker. This needs a family support worker. And they call us up and we go, okay, we'll get out there. And that's what I'm talking about. These, It's not reinventing the wheel. It's just resourcing the re wheel so it can do what the wheel was supposed to, do, to have done in the first place. And, you know, when we consider areas that have got arguably low criminality and low crime, it's not even a race issue, it's a class issue, but it's also, let's look at these areas. These are well-resourced areas. They've still got their family centers, they've got good health services, they've got good community services, and they've got a good community infrastructure and that community safety net is there, whether it's a paid for safety net or not, it's there. And that's what our communities are lacking. So what it looks like is basically getting these services and you know, a lot of services have gone under, but those, those kinds of that skill set is still within the community those people have gone nowhere so it's finding those people and getting those services up and running and then finding a structure where they are all talking to each other and identifying families or community members who are in need and in need of support and making sure that they are on the radar like when I worked in Anfield and this is the beauty of having that community base and that community level of knowledge 
we spoke to all of the organizations within that area the ones that were still standing like we watched a lot of organizations go under because they were underfunded but the ones that were still standing we always spoke to each other and we always knew if something was happening like if there was a family where someone had lost a job or there was like you know, someone's mental health was on the decline and we knew they were struggling for food we had them on our radar so they'd come in and we'd be like oh do you know we've got food bank vouchers here do you know we've got a little and we'd make sure that they always got what they needed and when they walked into the next place they'd be like oh do you know we're doing like a bit of a recruitment now do you know there's job opportunities in the area and that's the kind of response that we need because families and people like that if they haven't got that safety net it could be an organised crime group going, do you know you can make this money by selling drugs for us? Do you know you can do this and we'll help you? Do you know that? Or a loan shop? Do you know we can lend you some money? And that's where people fall off the cliff. And it's a very thin line. It's a very thin line. But with a community coordinated response, you can help and you can improve things. And this is the thing. When has increased policing in marginalised communities and communities that are struggling ever helped the problem? never helped or every time resources and services have consistently and persistently proven that they have helped like the thing that used to drive me mad in the children's centers was we actually um, mapped the outcomes for children over a five-year period who'd used our services and then gone into schools because we worked with the schools and you know literacy and numeracy was quite low in the area and it showed that when children have come through our services and families a outcomes improve for parents so parents were in work you know and all those positive things but also the children's literacy and numeracy improved and we could map that what we were doing with and we could actually show them what we were doing with and how it was improving outcomes and they still took 80 percent of our funds and, and it's like <laughs> these services work so don't act like they don't just get the money back into them yet the police persistently show that what they're doing doesn't work and you know destroys communities and the government's like let's give them more money let's get more officers on the streets and we're like no we do not need this at this moment in time we don't need it yeah and I think you know you've 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 proven on a few occasions they're like what 7.8 percent of crimes are solved it's ineffective it's clearly not working yeah um but there's an argument that actually the system's working exactly as it's supposed to work because this is what was designed this is what the government want they want us to well I say us communities to lose that community spirit because mm. in collectivism we can collectivize against these things that give them power that give them money and funding and all of the things that you know it is a, a class system as well that the rich elites that they need um and the, I feel like the police force is a tool for that as well I think you're absolutely right in what you say. If we can fund community services who have the skills and who have the knowledge and and could do a far better job, that will be the dream. It will be absolutely fantastic. And yeah, Social Think Tank have talked about things like that, you know, a few times, and and we're well on board with that. If if people want to get involved with Operation Withdraw Consent, if people want to help, how would they go about doing that? Um, so please get involved please help like we need the more people involved with this and the more people shouting from the rooftops like please don't be disheartened by what's happened with the police crime sentence in Courtsville the reason they brought it in is because we can see that the working class are collectivizing and organizing and trying to improve things for our communities and we know as Laura's just said that the police are used as a tool to control and kind of subjugate and surveil us and stop us from ever getting the things we need and from rising up and getting you know equality equal pay you know 
a living wage, all of these really radical ideas. Um, but please, if you want to get involved in Operation With Draw Consent, uh, follow us on our social media and get in touch through social media. So um, our Twitter is OWC, Operation With Draw Consent, 2022. Um, Instagram is at Operation With Draw Consent and Facebook's Operation With Draw Consent. You can also just follow or DM me. Um, we have got an email address, which I can't remember off the top of my head because who does email anymore? But the social media is always monitored. So just drop us a DM. And we are looking for people, you know, not undercover police officers, but genuine people who do want to see a change to get involved um, I do have to say this because I know there's many abolition movements we're not saying abolish the police and the only reason I don't say that is because as much as I've had that inside of you I do acknowledge that there are instances that do need a police in response there are very serious instances that happen in this country you know be it terrorism be it violent crime be it violent domestic abuse that do need people to go in with a level of kit to like absolutely deal with the situation and I can't see any model other than policing that can deal with those high level crimes but what we're asking for is those 80 percent of incidents that are nowhere near high level crimes that are just communities in need to be handed back to the community and be adequately um, resourced and kind of funded so we can get those services up and running and if that's a message you can get behind guys please give us a follow dm us get involved Absolutely. I mean, Chantelle, to be fair, I could talk to you about this all day. It's so interesting. And I love how like it's so there's so many much intersectionality between, you know, power struggles, class, misogyny, racism, homophobia. It all links together and it all is all a designed system. And we do have to tackle that. And I think what you're doing is just fantastic. And I, I do hope people will get involved and will get behind this. We will, of course, put all the links um, uh, with this video um, in the comments. Um, Chantelle, I'm pretty sure we're going to invite you on one of our live shows as well, where people can get involved and ask you questions, probably on one of our Saturday night shows. Um, because this is really, really important. You know, this is our communities. This is the, the lives of the people you live with. Um, and I, I just think it's a great initiative and I would encourage everybody to get behind it. So we will drop everything in the comments, um, along with the links to subscribe to Socialist Think Tank, become a member, join our Discord server, uh, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, subscribe, hit the notification button so you don't miss any shows. We will be back soon. Thank you again to Chantelle for joining me on the return of the social ties. And yeah, have a good one. Keep the red flag flying here